When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Film Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Abrams, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Tony Shaw and Giora Goodman about their new book, Hollywood in Israel, a history. Tony Shaw is professor of contemporary history at the University of Hertfordshire, and Giora Goodman is a historian and chair of the Department of Multidisciplinary Studies at Canaret College on the Sea of Galilee. Tony and Giora, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Tony and Giora, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourselves. Giora, you go first. Okay, so um, I live in the Upper Galilee in Israel, and uh, I've been uh, researching history, and especially history of uh, propaganda and the way governments uh, use uh, the mass media in order to uh, create international images. And uh, this is how I also find, found a lot of interest in the idea of Hollywood and Israel and their relationship. Um, of course, it, uh, once you start working on a project, it develops from looking just at how films were created and looking at how um, the work of uh, propaganda was done behind the scenes or public diplomacy, as it's called today, to everything that Hollywood contributes to the mass media. Beyond the films, a lot of uh, publicity, public relations, a lot of uh, celebrity work. And uh, just to examine the connection between uh, what is uh, the world's entertainment capital and a particular state uh, with which it was heavily invested emotionally uh, and to see how that developed over the years. Uh, yeah, hi Nathan. Yeah, I'm a 20th century historian who's worked a lot on, on uh, film and politics. Uh, I started out as a historian of the modern Middle East. Uh, that was my thesis, my first book back in the day. And, I, and I, uh, I got my interest in media and politics from studying at Leeds University 
uh, in the mid 1980s. That was one of the few universities that combined history with media. Um, so, and that's uh, that's been what I've been doing over the last well, right, 20, 30 years or so. Great, thank you. I mean, and how did you two come to write Hollywood in Israel? I think the trigger, uh, my trigger was, uh, was uh, I was in Hollywood uh, researching the archives of the Mar uh, Margaret Herrick Library, which is the main motion picture archive in Los Angeles. And I was doing some work on a different project there in, uh, in around 2014. In the summer of 2014, you might recall, there was a big row in Hollywood um, over what Israel was doing in Gaza, uh, and it pitted... Uh, actors like Mark Ruffalo against uh, other celebrities um, who were, uh, you know, Ruffalo was critical of what Israel was doing, others like Sylvester Stallone were more supportive. Uh, and this got me thinking, yeah, okay, Hollywood and Israel, uh, that's, that's, that's really, I've never really thought too much about that. And, and actually that, that, that time I was in the archives, I came across, I was looking at Gregory Peck's papers uh, about something to do uh, nothing to do with Israel, and I found this this letter from Frank Sinatra to Gregory Peck saying, "Hey, do you want to come to Israel? I'm I'm gonna I'm uh, hiring an air, an airliner, uh, and I want to stuff it with 200 people who uh, who want to go to Israel." And this was clearly part of uh, Frank Sinatra's support for for Israel, which went back uh, went back years. So that got me digging, uh, uh, and I, you know, that so that was sort of my trigger for it. Europe, what about you? Well, my main work, which uh, started uh, writing and researching and writing at PhD University College London on um, Anglo-American relations uh, and the responses in Britain to the Americanization of Britain was focused mainly on the news media. And um, at the time, I was also involved in trying to develop projects for documentary television and uh, one of these was uh, an idea of making a film about the impact of Exodus, how it was made and its impact. That didn't come through but a few years later uh, while mainly working on the news media and I had collected all these interesting, interesting papers from the Israeli archives about the making of Exodus I said to myself, perhaps I'll turn that into an article. And as I was working on that, so uh, Hugh Wilford, who we both know, Professor Hugh Wilford, uh, knew that I was working on Exodus, knew that Tony is now interested in Israel and, uh, and the, the whole connection between Hollywood and Israel, and uh, put us together. And uh, then we found out that we support different football teams, but except that, everything has been... Uh, Know, we're working together on this project uh, for the last, uh, I'll say, five, six years, uh, turning it into a book. Hi, so you just mentioned Hugh Wilford, and there's a connection there as well, because um, he was my um, external examiner for my PhD. Um, so, small world. I mean, of course, having co-written a, a couple of books, how was it working together, particularly when you're in different countries? Uh, I think it worked pretty well. Uh, we both we both have access to uh, rich archives. Uh, I uh, even though I'm UK based, 
and we did use some UK archives and some European archives. Uh, I was I've been working in Los Angeles in the archives for you know 10, 15 years or so. So so we might say that uh, I worked on the Los Angeles based stuff, um, and um, Gura worked on the Israeli based stuff. But Gura also worked on some American based stuff as well in around New York, Boston, etc. Um, so I think it I think it worked out pretty well. Gura, what do you think? I think that uh, working together was possible because of modern communication. Uh, and much of this book was written on uh, Skype and then uh, last year on Zoom. And the, the ability uh, to not just write drafts and share them and go over them, of course, with uh, you know, corrections through Word and all that, but also to discuss so easily our work together uh, as, it's, as it developed, I think that is a very, very important part of it. That so much of it was not just a written discussion, as it might have been, uh, let's say, 20 years ago, uh, writing, you know, on two ends, uh, one in uh, the UK and one in Israel, but uh, the ability to just discuss everything as it developed. Um, for me, it was uh, the first experience of writing something so substantial together with a co-author. Uh, friends of mine and colleagues of mine in the social sciences do it much more often. Uh, and, and I think that it's an interesting thing for historians do to go through this, uh, this uh, process. And of course, it's very rewarding in itself. I think I'd add as well that Sometimes when, I mean, I've worked with other people in the past and, and sometimes um, you, you apportion up pieces of a book, let's say, oh, I'll write this chapter or I'll write that half of the book. We didn't do that with this. We, we, we worked on every chapter together. There were roughly, whatever, 10 chapters and we wrote them together. Um, uh, and that, of course, has difficulties. It's more time consuming when you work that way. But... Uh, I think I got a great deal more from it because that meant it's much more of a joint exercise, much more of a joint book, and I think it's richer for it. And that combination of, I mean, we want to emphasize that this is a really archival rich book. You know, we've done, we've looked in dozens and dozens of filmmakers, of politicians, of uh, you name it, arch of uh, papers. And only by really engaging uh, closely with each part of the book have we have we made it much more uh, interesting and entertaining I, I think yeah i think it's important to do it that way um to give it a kind of a, a unifying voice otherwise you know the eagle eye could could spot the you know who did what um yeah so so let, let's talk about the book itself now um would you like to talk us through um you know what's in the book how you structured it what choices you made? Yeah, we, uh, I'll go first if you don't mind, Gura. We decided to, um, initially we thought we might base it around certain themes. Uh, we, and then we thought we might base it around certain characters, like have a chapter for Sinatra, have a chapter for Ben Hecht, etc. But then we decided because we want to reach out to a wider audience, some of whom, many of whom won't but really won't be experts on Israel, won't be by any means experts on Hollywood. We decided to, to make it more of a narrative. Uh, and so essentially the book tells a story 
Zionism and Hollywood uh, reaching back. Uh, we, our first chapter looks at the pre-state years, you know, pre-1948, and then the, the rest of the book is about um, you know, after Israel was it was created. Uh, Texas through um, different, you know, the, the ebbing and flowing of the relationship. How, in many ways, the relationship we argue sort of peaks in the 19 in that uh, peaks in the 1970s. Uh, and uh, we start the book by talking about one particular uh, TV program, which uh, emphasizes that more than anything else, is a, a great celebration by American entertainment industry, 1978 of Israel's 30th birthday, which is a, a big TV program starting, uh, starring the likes of uh, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, and Barbara Streisand. Streisand sings the Israeli national anthem at the end. She gets to interview um, Golda Meir, uh, and it's a real high point for the, this, this what we call special relationship. And then that that relationship has has dipped somewhat uh, over the past 30, 40 years. But we still argue that it's it's really resilient relationship, a very strong one. In other words, that there is criticism in Hollywood of Israel, uh, as exemplified during the, the Gaza War of 2014, but. Uh, there's still a lot of support for Israel, nonetheless. Europe, you're to that. The approach of the book is both uh, chronologic, but it also is thematic because it develops over time uh, in terms of, for example, the trends that were popular in Hollywood at the time of filmmaking and the subjects which... Uh, are offered by what is actually happening out there uh, in the world and of course in the uh, in the state of Israel once established and the conflict uh, in the Middle East the ongoing conflict in the Middle East so while certain themes carry themselves throughout uh, the relationship there are also specific themes which are made uh, more clear uh, for example, in the 1950s, while the biblical film's trend uh, was, was at its peak in Hollywood, that also manifested itself because of uh, the peculiar position of uh, Israel as also the Holy Land. Uh, and so the question of will biblical films with biblical history be made in Israel or in other places, um, so we have a chapter which focuses on the 1950s, but it's got this biblical theme, and that is offered by the subject matter itself. Then you get uh, uh, Hollywood's preoccupation in later decades uh, with the terrorism as a whole, not just related to Israel, uh, and that, of course, is manifested also vis-à-vis -vis Hollywood's uh, relationship with Israel and filmmaking in Israel and about Israel. And Israel has its own part to play in it. Uh, and of course, the conflict itself and international attitudes to it, and how they develop. One of our earliest chapters shows uh, progressive support for Israel, which was uh, marked in the early years of the state. And there are many, many progressives in Hollywood, very much involved with Israel, interested in making films about Israel, uh, which would uh, be you know, positive. While... Uh, Tony was discussing this last decade uh, where you can see that it is the progressive side of the map and it's the 
progressives in the Democratic Party and all those that, those sections in American public opinion which have become more critical of Israel. Yeah, for sure. This is definitely the first book about that. I mean, many, there's been a lot of work um, in, in terms of journal articles um, and books for that matter about, for instance, Exodus, you know, Preminger's classic from the from 1960, a lot of work on Exodus. But I think we argue that that, that focus on Exodus has, has distorted the picture somewhat. Uh, we do, of course, look at um, different movies, key movies, whether it's Exodus, whether it's earlier films, uh, like The Juggler, for instance, from 1953, starring Kurt Douglas, and then we go through to look at films like Munich, you know, Spielberg's Munich, which came out, I think, in 2005. So we, we highlight these key films, which are really important. We're looking at the films in terms of their content, their messages, but also at the making of them, why they're made, the controversy surrounding their making. Um, but we're also interested in what happens off screen. I think this, Nathan, more than anything else, this book really adds a, a layer which people haven't thought of before. What, what, how there's been such a strong relationship between Israel and Hollywood off screen whether it's the likes of lobbying by the likes of Sinatra or whether it's uh, co-productions that, uh, that Fiora referred to there in the 50s and beyond. Uh, and, and that really, I think, is, is, is uh, and that's where our archival material really comes in, whether we're looking at material from uh, filmmakers' papers or whether we're looking at uh, lobby groups' papers like APAC. Um, you know, we're really trying to tie Hollywood and Israel together in a, in a way which goes way beyond film studies. You know, we're, we're not film studies scholars. Uh, we've both written about film, but we're primarily historians and political historians. So we're wanting to tell a story about, you know, what role has Hollywood played in the uh, alliance that's developed between Israel and the United States, you know, over the past 70 years or so. I could, I could, yes, well, one of the things that archive research adds, which I think is very, very important, is uh, in the look beyond the films that were made, is the films that weren't made and why. And uh, one understands a lot about media from what gets left out or isn't made. Uh, nearly as much and sometimes as much or even more than what does get made. And, and here it's possible to see also the limits of the relationship between Hollywood and Israel. One can see a lot of enthusiasm often among supporters of Israel in Hollywood who are also very much involved with working for Israel in the media, PR, donating to Israel. But the actual filmmaking is something different. That is where they earn their living. And um, as one, uh, you know, Jewish supporter of Israel in Hollywood told an Israeli consul already in the mid-1950s, I'm a Jew on Saturday. Meaning, you know, I'll do a lot of things for Israel, but when it comes to actually producing films, the important thing, of course, is can those films be sustained uh, in, the, 
financially, this is a very high risk industry, which you can make a lot of money, but also lose a lot of money. And there's always the commercial limits on uh, ideological commitment. And that also not just explains what kind of films get made and don't, but it also explains counter forces. And it also explains why there's so much work uh, away from the cinema halls in, in uh, you know, uh, PR work like Frank Sinatra bringing a plane load of people over. Uh, Hollywood has expressed its support in many, many ways, uh, not necessarily through the actual filmmaking, because there the bottom line is, is this film going to make a profit or at least uh, not become a financial failure? And a quick example of, of that is that just after the 1967 war, this was at the end in which Hollywood produced a few heroic films about Israel's establishment in 1948. That's Exodus itself, Cast a Giant Shadow, Judith, with uh, with a Sophia Loren, but uh, and, and and there was immediate talk about making uh, another line of heroic films about Israel's success in 1967, which won Union very had a lot of support in the United States, certainly uh, in Hollywood itself, and uh, but no films were made, no films were made uh, from that time to this day, which is an interesting question in itself. Why? The films get made or don't get made. And it wasn't that producers weren't interested, but nothing really came down to something in which you would invest a lot of money and make a film. And all the big names of the time were suggested to be in leading roles. This is in the late 60s, but nothing came out of all that. And in the book, we try and address these issues, for example, at that juncture and others, and uh, to understand why Hollywood makes films when they want to make films, uh, the producers, or doesn't. And of course, how this relates to the general relationship with Israel. Another, another addition is, of course, the political side of Hollywood support in the United States and abroad. First of all, Hollywood's power in the United States itself is some, something that Israel can try and utilize in its public diplomacy and approach to American audiences. Uh, the power of uh, uh, the pro-Israel lobby in the United States has always been Capitol Hill and Congress and American uh, uh, wider public and general opinion and using Hollywood for that, both in terms of those uh, 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 celebrities who will speak out to Israel in the American media, but also having uh, people in Hollywood have got political connections uh, to intervene with presidents and uh, in, in the White House or in Congress and to bring forward Israel's case. on Jews in Hollywood, for instance. I mean, Neil Gabler's classic book from the 80s uh, about uh, the Jews' creation of Hollywood uh, in the, in the uh, early years, of, early decades of the 20th century. Um, that's a great book, I think, and was a very influential book, but it leaves 
of course, its story ends largely uh, in the 1940s, so you can't tell as much about um, Hollywood's relationship with Israel, but it certainly seems to imply that vast, vast, vast majority of Hollywood was, was ambivalent about a Jewish state. Um, and our, our book, I think, slightly puts a, a different twist on that. You know, we were able to look, for instance, at 1940s and the, the role of Ben Hecht and others, uh, and look at the, the row between Ben Hecht and, and other um, Hollywood stars, Jewish Hollywood stars in particular, uh, and their uh, different sort of support. If you recall, Hecht was was criticised heavily for his for his uh, apparent support for you know Bergen terrorism in the late 1940s. So we're able to put that period in a wider context. I think um, lots of books you write on um, the Israeli film industry. Um, our book again is able to add to that uh, by by looking at these interconnections, as as Giora has mentioned, that how the Israeli film industry is is helped to a degree by Hollywood in its development in the fifties and sixties. Um, so, because of these connections, very very high up connections, um, including in the, the, the Israeli government. I mean that that's something. I don't think either of us would claim that when we came to this subject, we are experts on Israeli film industry, frankly. Uh, we're more historians of, of politics and international affairs. Um, but we've become, I think, quite, quite, uh, you know, strong on, on how that film industry developed in, in through those connections with what was happening in the United States politically and, uh, and culturally. You're Putting together, putting together the two ideas of Hollywood and the discussion that has been uh, around uh, the Jewish uh, influence in Hollywood and the Jewish presence in Hollywood and Hollywood making films about uh, Jewish issues, uh, this is uh, quite a bit has been written about this and about Hollywood's making films about Jewish issues has also. Uh, included and involved Hollywood's depiction of Israelis. I, I think the important thing in our book is, again, their historical and their, uh, their approach through the archives and the fact that what is presented on screen is only part of the story, a very important part of the story where the films are made, but only part of the story because so many films and ideas for films were not made and that allows us to understand the Hollywood connection with Israel. And in fact, even in, in the reference to the American Jewish community, in particular and specifically in its relationship with Israel, and then of course, there's all the work off screen of those who owe their um, living uh, and their fame to Hollywood. And this brings to the four other very important issues in the relationship. We mentioned uh, politics. One can also add the connection, uh, the cultural connection between the United States and Israel. And of course, people have written about the cultural connection. Uh, and uh, people have also mentioned 
Hollywood within that, and there's been some focus on Exodus and on Leo Neuris's book, which led to Exodus, which is as important as the film, and in respect of Jewish audiences, perhaps even more than the film. But uh, this is the, the first focus through archive-based history research on that relationship, and over a century, from 1920 to uh, the present day, or nearly the present day. Um, and I think that uh, one can also see in the book itself that uh, once it comes closer to our days, uh, the sources become uh, more media sources, uh, because we have less opportunity to have a look behind the scenes of things that we didn't know were happening, but now we do know, which is, of course, what historians uh, can do when they have archive sources. But because this is part of the whole story developing from 1920, we can see a, a trend here, which I think is a very uh, important, interesting one, which is also something which is researched not just um, in the relationship of Hollywood and Israel, and that's a changing attitude towards Israel in the Western world since 1967. I think there's something there that's very, very key. And you can see that in the rising criticism in the last decade, certainly. New voices, which are becoming heard more and more, and in Hollywood too. And uh, this certainly occupies uh, the latter chapters of the this episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. No, I mean, I, I mean, also as a historian who's moved into film studies, it's a pleasure to see a book that, um, you know, that combines all the different facets of, 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 you know, film studies with archives, with the kind of extra diegetic uh, um, world of, um, you know, the stars, and, and 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 so so it's great that you brought this all together, and um, I hope I hope it provides a model. Um, for, for film scholars going forward, um, let alone historians doing film studies. One thing I do want to ask, I suppose to always ask, is there any difficult choices that you had to make in terms of um, what you left in? Uh... Yeah, I think so. Um, well, partly going back to what we said earlier about the structure, do we have a thematic structure? Do we have a structure based around certain personalities? Um, you know, when you're, when you're writing, as we decided to write a, a narrative, you know, going through from the 1920s through to the present day, then you've got to make sure that it just doesn't become just a list of, oh, here's another thing, and oh, here's another film, and etc. So you've got to decide, for instance, which films to focus upon. 
So we, it's clearly we decided as historians that, okay, which films, A, were the most important politically, and Exodus and Munich, I think, are the two standout films in terms of their influence politically. And then, well, okay, the other question for us as historians is what archival material exists for us to really tell important or say important or new things about both those films and lesser known films. Uh, we mentioned the, the, the juggler uh, and, and others. So, you know, there's that, you know, do you try and cover everything? That would be ridiculous. We just become, and I find this with, to some extent, with, with some books um, on films, is that they just become a list of those films and, and the reader can often get lost um, in, oh, here's another film and here's another film. They, you can't distinguish one from the other. Uh, so we spend, those films that we do analyze, analyze at length, we really go to town over uh, because, we're, because we're able to, because we're, we're looking at the making of the film, the, 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 the messaging of the film, and also really importantly, the reaction to the film, not just critical reaction, but political, cultural reaction to the film. That's especially the case with, uh, with Munich, for instance, uh, which caused a, a, a major ruckus in, in the US and in Israel. Uh, we're able to look at what Spielberg was trying to do with that film. So that's an example of, you know, juggling with what we can and, and cannot fit in. And then we were led to some extent by not just looking in conventional archives. I mean, for instance, I, I found uh, a, a lot out about a, a guy, Nathan, you may not have heard of him, but it's called Max Nussbaum, who was a, a rabbi in Hollywood, a very influential rabbi in Hollywood from the 40s through to the 70s. Um, and he helped uh, convert the likes of Elizabeth Taylor uh, to become a Jew, and Elizabeth Taylor went on to become a, a major supporter of, of Israel. Uh, and I, I was able to gain access to um, the, the, the temple, the synagogue, where uh, Nussbaum worked. And I, nobody had rifled in the archives of, of, of that uh, of that synagogue before I'd done that. I spent a couple of months doing that one summer in Los Angeles itself. So I was able to then we're able to tell the story about what this rabbi to the stars, as he was called, uh, the influence he might have had on things in having to organize and corral a number of his congregants uh, to become supporters of Israel. Uh, uh, and I found that just as a historian, you know, the, 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 the excitement you get to finding a new archive, uh, you know, it's just, it's just what you live for in many ways. So. And that, for me, that was that was the high point of, of, uh, of doing the book. Your... Sounds like there's a book in there on itself on uh, Max Nussbaum. Um, you know, I've thought about that, and there's there's one biography written of him, but it was written you know a couple of years, several years ago, and largely it, it just uh, it's uh, it's not a hagiography that wouldn't be fair, but it's uh, it doesn't really put him in a wider context as there might be. Um, yeah, I think I think well, yeah, that, that could be maybe Nathan and I we should. Should talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, off, off this. Um, Giora. Okay. Um, well, I think that um, when I look at our work, I think that in, I don't think we had to really leave out the lack of space, anything that we found important. We, it's always possible to take some of the material which you condense more in a book and turn it into articles for journals. And we did that in a few cases, for example, in the case of the Entebbe films, 
where which are part of the chapter in the book and a, an article published in Diplomatic History, which allows you to um, expand on that and the film The Juggler too. But I think another thing that that, that helps us is that there haven't been as many films about Israel as intentions of making films about Israel and support for Israel. So it's not that Hollywood produced dozens and dozens of films about Israel because of a particular attachment and one has to choose. I think that an interesting comparison here would be with another country uh, with which Hollywood is very closely attached, and that is uh, Britain. Uh, there's been a lot of close relations, a lot of British people working in Hollywood. And this is from the beginning of Hollywood, uh, the same language. Hollywood has uh, been in love, if one can use that expression collectively, with uh, particular uh, parts of British history and uh, uh, particular facets of British life. And if you'd have made a, a book about uh, Hollywood's relationship to Britain from 1920 to around 2020, then you'd have to make very hard choices about, because there's so many more films, so what do you put in and what do you leave out? And, you know, uh, and, and one could even, you know, perhaps even say that about France and Italy and other places where Hollywood has had a special relationship for one reason or other. Uh, what I liked in particular about our about working on this subject, and Tony mentioned, you know, the, this uh, aspect of just finding a rabbi, and here this is this is the person in Hollywood, not just the celebrities, and not just the producers and the moguls. Uh, the, this book combines when when you make a book such as this, it combines the most political political and politicized subjects with the stuff of uh, gossip columns and a lot of humor so we have in the one on the one hand we have in this book we deal with the most complicated and also politically charged and even painful aspects of uh, the conflict surrounding Israel's establishment it deals with the Holocaust it deals with the Nakba with with expulsion of the Palestinians, for those who don't know the name, uh, don't know the term, but it also has a lot of humor in it. Not necessarily around all the political stuff, but sometimes related to it. Take, for instance, uh, in the same chapter in which we discuss Munich, where you have, for the first time, a film in Hollywood in which not, not only that an American Jew doesn't come to live in Israel at the end of the film, becoming now even a non-Jew-like, uh, Ari Ben Knan in Exodus, uh, love interest that she, you know, she becomes an Israeli at the end of the film. Uh, but uh, you have the Israeli hero disappointed with it, the moral choices and uh, the things he had to do working for Israel that leaves Israel and goes to live in the United States. This is 2004 5, the filmmaking, and this is a very, very strong statement. But a few years later, you have Adam Sandler's. Don't Mess With the Zohan, which goes for a different audience, but very successfully. And there you have also an Israeli commando hero who wants to lead Israel to become a hairdresser in New York, where he falls in love with a Palestinian, young Palestinian girl. And there you can have Israeli-Palestinian love and friendship 
but it's in New York. And in a way, it's the same message like the end of Munich. And it's a very, very sub subversive one. And when it comes with humor, it can be even more subversive often uh, because it appeals to audiences that are not necessarily interested in politics, but get this general look at, you know, what's being said here, the Israeli hero wants to be a hairdresser in New York. I don't think I could ever have forgiven you if you didn't mention Zohan in your in your book. <laughs> Although I will take issue with one uh, one omission, um, referring back to your list of films, you talk about the um, female Israeli badasses. There's there's a film called Predators, um, in which uh, one of these soldiers is transplanted to this planet to act as prey for these aliens, predators, and um, in one word or one acronym suddenly the whole movie changes. She explains she's IDF. And um, that's it. That's the only reference. But um, there's, there's an Israeli badass for you. So if you haven't seen that one, and if I miss it in the book, then... Uh, no, I, we've I not, we've not, I've certainly not seen that one. We don't write about yeah. that. No, no, it's a big, big hole in the book. <laughs> well, and, and Jerusalem, the, the, with the Z, Jerusalem. Um, I saw you did World War Z, but the less said about that, the better. Um, <laughs> um so towards the end, you, you, in the book, you talk about, um, you know, that television crossover, you know, Gideon Raff and the Homeland and Falder and its success. So the question I sort of want to ask is, is where do you think um, this is going if you um, had to make a predictive chapter? Um... Yeah, I think what we're trying to do towards the end of the book is, is, is on the one hand, um, look at the increased criticism in Hollywood. Um, of Israel, or particularly of, as you mentioned, the IDF uh, and its treatment of Palestinians. Uh, there's definitely a, a movement in that sense. I mean, we can, without going into too much detail, you can see different groupings in Hollywood in the current day. You have, let's say, people on the right, just, just for, for, for the sake of brevity, you might see people on the right, like uh, John Voigt and Sylvester Stallone, who are big IDF supporters. You might see people further in the centre, like Mayim Bielik, early actress, uh, and then people slightly further to the left, and you get, you know, uh, Michael Douglas, um, who's, who's a professed liberal, who took the Genesis Prize uh, from Israel in, I think, 2015. Um, Natalie Portman uh, stands further to the left, at, um, an avowed Zionist, but very critical, and was was uh, offered the the uh, Genesis Prize, but didn't turn up to take it uh, because Netanyahu would be at the uh, show. And then you get people who are BDS supporters who are way on the fringe, maybe like Danny Glover and Viggo Mortensen. So there's a, there's a, and the Gaza War clearly uh, showed us there's a, a much more criticism of, of Israel. Uh, but the reason why we talked about what um, has been happening more recently on TV is that you know, there's an extraordinary number of Israelis now working in Hollywood um, and producing stuff for Hollywood, whether it's on TV or whether it's uh, for movies. And in other words, this this if this relationship between Hollywood and Israel um, in industrial terms, in economic terms, uh, in filmic terms, which started in the 50s, is really bearing fruit now with the, the Israelis uh, working in Hollywood and some of them producing, um, uh, let's say, work about terrorism, 
which tends to be critical uh, of, of, of Palestinians or supportive of Israel. So there's a there's a political dimension to some of the productions that are emerging, uh, let's say, on Netflix and other areas. So we didn't want to, in terms of prediction, where is it going? I, I, difficult to say. We, we argue that, that we are potentially at a turning point in this special relationship that's developed between Holland and Israel, and a turning point whereby if you're a if you're a supporter of Israel, a long-term supporter of Israel in Hollywood, you, you might be frightened about uh, the, the apparent support that there is for BDS, for instance, uh, boycott movement. Um, I, I, I personally think that uh, the, the support is still very, very strong indeed. Uh, and, you know, back in 2018, a few years ago, they were, Hollywood had a big party for Israel. Uh, still, nowhere near as big a party as it did in 1978 with with Barbara Streisand on TV. That this party wasn't televised. It tells us that something has happened. Uh, the support isn't as overt, but it's still very strong, I think, uh, in terms of the superstructure of, of, of Hollywood. In, in the 1950s, uh, the beginnings of the development of Israeli cinema was all based around bringing Hollywood know-how over to Israel. Um, so you had, for example, uh, Floyd Crosby, who was a very famous cinematographer, uh, and the father, of course, of the famous singer, and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Yang. And he came over to Israel and filmed Salah Shabbati. Uh, this is here. You have Hollywood know-how, technical, coming over to Israel, and this is something that Israelis are encouraging, also in screenwriting, um, and uh, of course supporting uh, figures in Hollywood come over to help set up an Israeli film industry. I think today television has changed things in many ways. First of all, it's become completely international. A lot of the things that get made in Israel. Uh, the investment, because Israel is a small audience, is to get it sold uh, abroad, and some have done so successfully. Fauda and others are examples. Some things get produced already directly in Hollywood. But I think that Israel enjoys it, something which is not political, and that is how the world of cinema, of cinema, sorry, and television, through a streamline, is all becoming part of the high-tech, high-technology world. And Israel is a big world that's got a much larger presence in the world of the high-tech and high-tech development than the size of the population. And it's, uh, it's kind of a buzzword, Israeli high-tech. I think that, that part of that kind of buzz around Israel and around Tel Aviv also serves uh, uh, the creative talents in Israel. And there are the many, many creative talents which combine together the ability to produce content together with technology uh, that has been serving Israel certainly this last decade. In terms of the politics, I think, again, that, as I said earlier, that the attitude towards Israel in Hollywood, uh, their changing attitudes and where it would be harder for Israel, is something that you see across the mass media in the Western world. You see it in the news media too, and uh, it is uh, rising criticism of Israel, which is a result of uh, uh, the 
effects and or the after and after effects of the 1967 war and the power relationship between Israel and the Palestinians. Um, that is not the only thing, it's, it's more complex because of many, many other uh, uh, factors which are drawn into international relations. But I would say that with rising criticism, or if criticism of Israel will rise in general in the Western world, then that will be reflected in Hollywood too. Slower, perhaps, perhaps on less expensive things, because again, it's a high-risk industry in terms of what you produce. But generally, Hollywood here reflects uh, the culture within which it is operating and creating films for. Thank you. Um, we've kept you quite a while, um, um, but before we go, I'd like to, um, could you tell us what you're both working on next? Uh, another book together? So. Um, I'm, uh, I'm writing a book. I've been writing a lot about the Cold War over the years, and uh, uh, I'm writing a history of football during the Cold War. Did I hear that right? Football. Football in the Cold War. My next book is going to be titled Cold War Football, A History in Ten Matches. Oh, well, I look forward to that. Um, Fantastic. Back on here. Fantastic. And um, I'm, I'm back to focusing on the news media. Uh, I'm working in particular, I'm interested uh, again uh, in uh, what doesn't get published, just as much what does. So I'm very much interested in government press control and censorship. And I'm uh, focusing on that. News media from the days of the British mandate in Palestine and into the early decades of, uh, of Israeli history. And again, it's archive-based, so it's where the archives allow us to uh, a better inspection of what didn't get published and why it didn't as much as what did. That also sounds like a great project. And, um... Thanks. Um, but I want to thank you both for being on the show, show today. I really enjoyed it. And um, good luck with the book and, and take care. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.